Welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect authors with new listeners and provide advice to aspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. So hi there, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for coming back to the Authors of the Pacific Northwest. And this week, I have the pleasure of introducing you to an author that I'm just thrilled to have on the show. And and I know I say that a lot, but um, let me introduce you to Julia Stoops. So Julia, would you like to say hello to everyone? Hi, everyone. And thanks so much for having me, Vicki. It's really great to be here. Oh, you're so welcome. So Julia and I had a lot of little snap foods of getting us scheduled. So this is such a privilege of having her on the show. And she recently came into my area and did a book reading that I missed. So now I get to make up for it <laughs> on, on the podcast. So Julia, let's get started with a little bit of introductions. Why don't you share with the listeners um, where you live in the Pacific Northwest? I live in Portland, Oregon. And I have lived here for 25 years now, over 25 years. And my husband and I moved here from New Zealand in 1994. So we uh, were we're immigrants. Uh Um, And uh, I I had lived in Washington, D.C. for five years in the 80s and then moved back to New Zealand for a few years and then met my husband and kind of dragged him over here. And, and we've been here in, in Portland ever since. And, um, and uh, Portland's just a great place. It's it a beautiful city full of trees. Um, it's, it's changed a lot in the last oh, three, five years. Changed I was thinking lot. you jumped in before it got crazy. So hopefully mm-hmm. you bought your house and, you know, the housing market wasn't in crazy 25 years yeah. ago. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, this is maybe a little off topic for a writer's podcast. It's okay. <laughs> you, you know, like we house you could get a house for like a nice house for 50,000. You mm-hmm. could get a fixer upper for 20,000. Yeah. Um, and then by the time we bought our house, the, the prices had, you know, quadrupled. Yeah. But yeah. then since then they've quadrupled again. Oh, <laughs> so they have. It's just, yeah. It's just crazy. It's just crazy. Well, if you, and I know you said you've listened to some of my podcasts, but there is a couple of occasions because I I interview people from Seattle, which is another huge market of Mm -hmm. influx of individuals in Portland. Everybody loves the Pacific Northwest, but you'll hear me be a little cheeky and say, you know what? It rains here all the time. You don't want to come here. (laughs) It's miserable. And then other times I'm like, oh, it's just so beautiful. You know, so I keep forgetting that I'm trying not to sell the Pacific Northwest that much because we've definitely had the influx. Um, And my husband- it's, cold. it's very cold. Same way you are. <laughs> yes, it's raining today. It happened to rain today, yeah. and um, the day I had to take the dogs to the vet in my new car, I'm like, we've had no rain for weeks, and then the day I have to get them in my new car, they got muddy paw prints. That really oh, was. great! Yep, classic. Mm-hmm. classic. Yep. Yeah. So, so, but I'm glad you made your way to the Pacific Northwest. It is a beautiful region to live in, and I love Portland. Portland is our home even though we don't live in Portland and we had wished we had bought 25 years ago in Portland, Mm. (laughs) but we didn't, we missed the boat. So Julia, share with us a little more about yourself. Do you have a day job or are you one of those lucky author, full-time author writers? I have a day job. Um, I am not one of the lucky, lucky ones who is somehow financially independent. Uh, uh, I work as a, um, I'm the director of, uh, the web department at a Portland um, advertising and public affairs and public relations firm. Oh, okay. And uh, so I, I'm 
essentially my craft is website user experience design yep. and website information architecture. Yep, you are. Um, and <laughs> the clients I work with are, uh, they're, they're, it's usually big clients like government agencies, hospitals, energy companies, and so on. Um, that's the, and the, you know, the occasional like oncology clinic or something like that. Mm-hmm. So most of the, most of the work that the firm I'm in, most of the, most of the clients are, it's sort of like a B2B kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I, and I, I say this because sometimes I'll, I'll say I'm a web designer and people are like, oh, could you design my jewelry website? And I'm like, no. <laughs> Completely different yeah. website people. Yeah, so it's, you know. it's a very different, different world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so just, uh, just to put it out there, um, the Oregon Department of Justice website mm-hmm. designed by me. Nice. Uh, and that includes like consumer protection and um, charitable activities and crime victim services and so on. So, so yeah, like that's, that's the kind of stuff that I do all day long. Yeah. And it's like, you know, big budgets and team and all that kind of stuff. So. Well, I love it, Julia. So my, okay. So my listeners know a little bit about me, but I'll share a little bit about you since you might not. So my, my background is it as well. And Mm -hmm. it is, was web design and Oracle. And um, so two vastly, you know, IT related scripting writing and um, love, 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 love web design with all my passion, but ended up was like, yeah, this isn't great. I I was doing web design for music industry. So, Mm -hmm. um, but I did all my training and, and people don't realize for government websites, there's a lot of requirements that are, it's not just the element of beautiful or reasonable mm-hmm. websites. It's the accessibility aspects too. Yep. And um, so I love the fact that um, you do that. And I'm going to ask you a question later on about that, about your background okay. and your writing experience in your, your um, writing world. But the funny thing is, is that I didn't even end up being web design for a living. I ended up teaching a little bit in community college. And then I went and got my library science background to create databases for library Uh science. Yeah. Then landed in um, higher education. And now I have absolutely nothing to do with either of those things, but I train students going into getting their bachelor's degree in security networks. And I'm like, this is just the weirdest journey, you know, but Web design is my favorite. I mean, like if I yeah. could, if I could have figured out a way to do the web design full time, I probably would have done that because yeah. I love the thing I love about it is that you have to have a very analytical skills and you also have to have very good design skills. I mean, it's you do. multiple. You do. Things. Yeah. And you have to have empathy. A lot of being, a lot of what it takes to be a good user experience designer is to have empathy for your user. Yeah. And and so you have to understand the users, you know, and they might be people who are really different from you. You know, they yeah. might be people who are like elderly and they're experiencing some kind of like fraud or they might be, yeah. you know, people struggling with uh, child abuse. or they might be, you know, people whose first language is not English and, and mm-hmm. so on. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you know, really trying to put yourself in, in their shoes, trying to understand them, put themselves, put yourself in their shoes. So, you know, making experiences that that you hope will work for them so they don't get confused, you know, when mm-hmm. they're trying to form or something like that yeah. is a big part of it. Yeah. 
I love it. We could talk forever on this and we won't because we're going to talk about books, but you and okay. I could talk about this for because UI is like user design, user interfacing. It's all something I, I That's still really cool. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, okay. So let's go back to, um, and this is the question that I ask, and I usually ask this a little bit later on, but since we're on the topic of your background, you work for a PR firm, you know, a public relations firm. Did that help you in your adventure of getting yourself out there and knowing kind of what you should do in the marketplace as far as marketing your work, your book? Well, interesting. Interesting. You should say that because I, I joined, I joined that firm five years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, and by, I guess I still hadn't, no, I hadn't, I published the, the book a year and a half ago. And then I, I think it was, it was, acquired by the publisher two years before that. Mm -hmm. So um, to tell you the truth, I would say most of what I learned about putting my work out there was more from my publisher. She gave me a lot of tips, Laura Stanfield at Forest Mm -hmm. Avenue Press. Okay. Um, You know, she gave me a lot of tips because she has, she guides her authors, you know, quite closely. Um, the, the PR that my firm does is more like, you know, pitching op-eds to the Oregonian and, yeah, yeah. and so, you know, it's like a different kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, it's not really about promoting um, in the, like individual artists uh, achievements or, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. yeah it's a yeah. different, it's a different kind of thing. Although the whole, the whole thing about like how you have to be careful mm-hmm. um, and, you know, like be really careful about what you say and, you know, be very careful about uh, the choice of words because you can be easily misunderstood. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. On. You know, there's yeah. all these stories in the PR world of like yeah. people writing what they think are innocent tweets that just blow up into some <laughs> firestorm and then they become pariahs and, you know, because they got misunderstood <laughs> for something they said. So, so you know, that kind of um, care and attention, I think, is, is definitely something I, I pick up a lot. Uh, when I when I'm at work, yeah, and I think that's so very good because you and I before we we started recording, we talked a little bit about some of the skill sets that authors really need as far as putting themselves out there in readings and you know mm-hmm. in in um, public facing situations. Um, so I think I I'm a little jealous because I don't have a PR background per se or somebody that I could go to to ask questions about specific PR. And I think a lot of authors. Um, get intimidated by the marketing aspect of yeah. their work. It's really hard for us to sell ourselves and then to know how to do it um, professionally and tactfully without saying, just buy my book, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, and there's no, you have to be very strategic. You have to be, um, you have to plan. Mm-hmm. You have to sort of set goals. Yeah, have deadlines. Um, yeah, deadlines. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's get back to... Um, to you and me asking these bizarre questions, but this happens organic podcast, you know, something will pop up and I need to know. (laughs) Um, One question I love to ask um, authors on the show at the very beginning is we're told all the time as authors, you need to be reading, you know, have a, keep yourself in your genre or even outside your genre. So I'd love to ask the question, what's on Julia's reading shelf right now? What are you currently reading? Um, Gosh, I, I, I read a lot of nonfiction. I, mm-hmm. I would say I read probably, you know, one quarter fiction, three quarters nonfiction. And a fiction book I just 
finished like literally a day or two ago is, um, and I'm terrible at remembering authors' names. So oh, I am too. So if you have to look it up, I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> um, and book. Okay. The author's name is Robert Bausch. And the book is Far As the Eye Can See, starting with the word far, not as far as the eye can see, yeah, but as far, far as the eye can see, mm-hmm. Robert Bausch, B-A-U-S-C-H. And I, I really enjoyed it. It was um, from the point of view of a, this guy, it's like after the Civil War, and he's just kind of like wandering around the, like Wyoming, Montana, hmm just trying to like make do, you know, like mm-hmm. he's just picking up opportunities where he can, you know, he gets a horse, he loses a horse, he get, you know, like, <laughs> uh, and, and there's all of these interactions he has with people, with soldiers. He's kind of ends up on the run from the, from the soldiers. Um, he, he has interactions with native American tribes. He has interactions with like, like this, these two, this pair of women who are traveling to Oregon you know, like by the Oregon Trail mm-hmm. and so on. And so he just meets all these characters and he has all these interactions with them. And he's kind of, um, he's not a learned man. And so he sees the world through, you know, his own lens. But at the same time, all of these experiences he's, he has sort of opens his eyes and changes him. And um, and and he's quite he's quite a lovely character. He's like, obviously, you know, rough as, rough as guts, but he's like this really um, kind of cool character that is drawn by Robert Bausch. Um, and I really, I really enjoyed it. It was, it was, it was good. And I, I enjoy books that are from, uh, from a character point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have a hard time with books where, where the author is telling me the story mm-hmm. and, and I just, and I think it's because of the way I, I learned fiction writing, which was very much sort of character point of view, scene by scene. Mm-hmm. If I find, um, I find it when an, when an author tells me a story, uh, I, I just, it's really hard for me to concentrate. And yeah, I often, I'm completely often finish those books. Way. Yeah. I'm the yeah. same way. I will start a book if it's scene driven or, um, heavily author driven and I will want to get into it. But if, if it's not character driven and if there's not fantastic dialogue to really bring me in, mm-hmm. then I typically won't finish the book. It's just how I, I operate as well. And that's how I'm writing. So I'm discovering that my writing is definitely very character driven. And, and some of the feedback that I've been getting on my, my writing as I go is, you know, you can buff up some of the scenes and some Mm -hmm. of the, the texture and the backdrops. And I, but I, I just have a hard time and I can do that because I'm great at research. So don't have, I don't have a problem researching what that should be. I'm doing historical fiction right now. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I don't want to, I love dialogue and I love character interactions. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where, why I write that way, but yeah, I'm drawn yeah. to that definitely. So fantastic. Okay. So I'll be adding that to my reading list. Um, yeah. That's one reason why it's all selfish, this podcast. So I, <laughs> my reading list is definitely growing as well. So I'm like, all these books I got to read. So good. Okay. Um, so Tell us a little bit, um, so let's start out with the title of your book, because I already know what it is, but I can't assume my listeners are going to know, right? So tell right. us the title of your book, and since it's a unique perspective, give us a little bit about the perspective, and then um, and and then we'll go into the writing process of that actual book, and I'll ask you sure. some questions about that. Okay. Well, the book is called Parts Per Million, and it is a... 
I mean, you want me to give like a little synopsis? Yes, or something? I think you should for yours because it's unique. <laughs> okay, <laughs> in my right. opinion, yeah. Uh, well, maybe I'll just I'll just start with something a little. Um, I'll start. I'll, I'll sort of step back a little bit and, sure. and get into the formal aspect. Yeah, um, it's told from three points of view, and mm-hmm. so there are these chapters, a lot of short chapters, and they alternate between these three points of view, and the three points of view are um, are. Nelson, John Nelson, Jen, and Fetzer. And these three people are three environmental slash media activists who who live together in an old decrepit house in inner southeast Portland. And they have this, um, they're kind of fifth estate journalists. Mm-hmm. They, they have a media sh- uh, 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 website, a comprehensive website about environmental and ecological issues and activities and so on they have a a, like a newsletter a mailing list thing um and then they have this monthly radio show at the local community radio station which is modeled on KBU. i don't call it KBU; it's unnamed the station but it's modeled on KBU in portland which i used to i used to be a KBU volunteer so oh yes I don't know where I got those details. Lovely um, research, right? Hands yeah, on. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, this is material. Yes. <laughs> not at the time, but it was material. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so they they were radical environmental activists, like doing, you know, kind of eco-sabotage, participating in that. And then they decided to step back at some point before the story opens and become the people who record and archive this this stuff and all the way from um you know like the most sort of like radical like eco-sabotage all the way up to the more kind of standard mainstream environmental stuff like the sierra club and so on mm-hmm. so they're gathering these they consider it like this archive of like everything that's happening environmental ecological around the world um not just nationally but also internationally and they're, they see themselves as, as disseminators of, of this kind of knowledge, mm-hmm. collectors and disseminators of this kind of knowledge. And so it's set in 2002, 2003. So the book uh, mm-hmm. spans about, <clears throat> excuse me, 10 months. And it's set during the time when, in the Bush administration, when the, um, the country is gearing up to invade Iraq. And so this mm-hmm. is that post 9-11 mm-hmm world that we were plunged into yes you know, exactly <laughs> yeah like it opens about you know like less than a year after 9-11 happened and and so the world is changing rapidly well the world their world America is changing rapidly and the Bush administration is kind of laying down these very strange institutions you know that that's when the Department of Homeland Security started mm-hmm. yeah um there were other just like weird things that were coming out, like mm-hmm. Operation Tips was mm-hmm. this was mm-hmm. this program where citizen spies were going to get recruited to spy on people in their homes, and these mm-hmm. were people who go into people's homes. So, like you know, the cable repair guy and yeah. the water meter I person. I remember and this. So <laughs> Very yeah. well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the Bush administration was like proud of this. Like we're yeah. starting this program. Aren't we yeah. great? Yeah. This is spies, <laughs> and and we're like um. Uh, that's like the Stasi in East Germany, remember? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then also Total Information Awareness was another program that they started, which um, was, again, like, this is great. We're going we're gonna to gather information about everybody and we're going to use data mining in order to figure out who are the terrorists. And, and then that got shut down. 
But of course, it didn't get shut down as Edward Snowden's revelations came out in 2013, I think. Yeah. It went on. It just went underground. (laughs) And and now, you know, our goose is cooked. We have have no privacy. Everything is being collected about us and stored and archived and can be accessed anytime after the fact, you know, every, every interaction we have, that's not just like, you know, a face-to-face interaction with someone, everything that happens digitally. So, um, so, so yeah, it was, it was the time when that start, stuff was getting established mm-hmm. and privacy was basically being dismantled and, mm-hmm. and the war was, you know, being, mm-hmm. um, the false case for invading Iraq was being established by the mainstream media. The mainstream media was just helping everything along. Yeah. So, um, in the meantime, um, so you know, this is this is the historical background, which is yeah. like the real part. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and then the fictional part is the characters are all fictional, and um, their activities are all fictional. They're not they're not based on my own um, experiences. I mean, you know, there's there's texture that's based on my own experiences, mm-hmm. but I'm not any one of the characters. Like it's yeah. not, their arcs are not my personal arc. And you probably get asked that often because you have that on your website. Some of your frequently asked questions is right. how much of this is fiction and how much is real. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, so before you go any further, let me ask you this one question. I'm curious because, um, because I'm a Northwest native. So I raised here, was not originally born here, came here 18 months when I was 18 months old, but I raised Northwest Mm -hmm. and I honestly, and since you have your transplant, but you've been here a long time. So you probably consider yourself Northwest native. Um, I've always felt like the Northwest region has a much more awareness of these kinds of topics that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Like we're hypersensitive to it Mm -hmm. and we're very active. Um, Most people are very, very active, especially in the Portland region, Seattle region, but definitely in Portland, we're very well known for our activism. Yeah. Um, Do you think that you would have written the story had you not moved to Portland 25 years ago, maybe lived somewhere else in in the United States? Do you think that had a play on it for you? That's a really interesting question. Um, I I would have written something because I, before... Before I, I set the story in that very specific time ag- against the backdrop of the build-up to the war, I had already done a draft of the story, which was just generally about activists in a post-9-11 world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I actually drafted, the first draft of the novel happened in 2001. Oh. And, and then... During the fall of 2002, as, as the build-up to the war happened and so on, and, like, the streets of Portland started to get yes. filled with protesters and there yes. were these, like, regular marches and vigils and, like, all this graffiti springing up and everything, um, I thought I should, I should be putting these specifics into the book. Mm-hmm. I should make this, like, this very specific historical background as, as opposed to just, like, a general, like, here's a bunch of activists and they live in a house and have these adventures, you know? Um, so I, I probably would have written something just because I, after nine 11, um, I, I was just really disturbed and I think Mm -hmm. I would have been disturbed wherever I was in the country in terms of how any kind of dissent was getting just shut down, just, you know, literally censored out of the media and so on. My personal feeling, and I know this might not be every, but one of my Mm -hmm. listeners' feelings, or even this is not some of my family's feelings, but I feel like 
if you weren't disturbed during that time, <laughs> there's, you weren't paying attention. You should have, you, yeah. you had, and I feel that way about a lot of things going on now politically too. I mean, if you're not disturbed, then you are not feeling anything. <laughs> Where are you at? You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, interesting. Well, I just find it, I find it fascinating that your work, your book is around that time frame, and you, and it's the backdrop of Portland, because like I said, being, I, I'm a very proud person in the fact that I was raised and I call it very activist raised um, in the idea that in the Northwest, we're very open <laughs> to the idea of speaking our minds about these kinds of things where you mm. won't find that in other parts of the country. Yeah. Um, a, yeah. Lot, a lot more polite. We're going to not talk about activism. <laughs> right. Don't rock the boat. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 So. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we'll jump into a little bit about the writing process for you. So you had a draft in 2001 and were you sitting on it and then it just, this all happened or how, how you've been working on it? How did the, the writing process for this book go for you? Yeah, well, it was a very odd process. Um, I mean, it was quite magical and wonderful, but it was at the time I just was sort of a kind of not understanding what was happening um, to me, to me personally. Mm -hmm. And, and just to give you a bit of background, my, my creative uh, career ha has always been visual art. I have mm -hmm. degrees in art. I taught in art colleges for years um, before I went into web design. And, and I always identified as a visual artist. Mm -hmm. And I, I had no, um, inkling about being a writer like I never you know a lot of people say oh I always want to you know I wanted to be a writer since I was a kid or, or yeah. whatever and I just had no ambition to be a writer it wasn't like I thought writing was bad I mean I thought it was great yeah. I just felt yeah. like that's not for me you know like You're I just don't, more wired towards the visual arts yeah like yeah. I'm not yeah. going to be a dancer you know like yeah, I'm not exactly. dancing is great but yeah. no it's not for me um and so I the story kind of I swear, it felt like I was channeling it. You know, it was just the story that was in my head in 2001 and it was bugging me. I just thought about it the whole time. I was just sort of mentally obsessed with the story and I didn't tell anyone because I had mm -hmm. no one, yeah. no reason, like I had no explanation for why I was yeah. obsessed with the story. Yeah. yeah. And I, one day I started, I sat down on my computer and I started writing it down. Mm -hmm. And I found that the things that I was writing down those parts, my, my head stopped obsessing about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, okay. All right. And I just, it was like a way of getting this, this thing out of me. Yeah. And so I just kept typing and typing and typing and typing until the whole story was finished. It took me a few weeks. Um, and I really wasn't, uh, thinking about, um, it was just getting the story out. I wasn't thinking yeah. about craft or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. And and then I thought, well, that was weird. And again, I didn't tell anyone because it was like, how do I say? You know? Oh, no, I understand um, this. I, I identify with this more than you can imagine. As really? Many, oh, yeah. Many of my author friends that I've talked to, we all have similar experiences, but that's how my writing experience has always been. So I completely understand that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> huh. Well, that is interesting. Um, so yeah, I put it, I, I put it aside and I thought, well, that was weird, but it's out now, you know, mm -hmm. it was like sort of coughing up a big hairball or something. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, out exactly. now. I, can, I yeah. feel better. I can move on to other things. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then after a few months, like maybe a year went by and I thought, well, 
I must have done that for a reason. That was like a significant amount of effort. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm supposed to do something with this. Mm-hmm. And so I knew it wasn't um, craft-wise. I knew it was very, you know, I was very green. I had never yeah. studied creative writing. I'd never yeah. even studied yeah. literature or anything. And I knew, I just knew, um, I think because as a professional visual artist, you know, I, I know... I knew what it took to get from being uh, a very sort of green artist to someone who has a a sensibility that is more sophisticated. I know what it takes to get Mm -hmm. from A to B. Mm -hmm. Um, I I knew that to make the story I'd written be, you know, something that was worthy to put out in the world, I would have to go through a similar process of of refinement and, and, you know, learning how to the craft and so on. So I thought, well, maybe I can find like a writing group. And I, I joined I joined a writing group that turned out to be the, the best thing in the world. And it's called Pinewood Table. Okay. And it's um it's run by Stephen Allred and Joanna Rose. Oh, Stephen was on our show. Yeah, yeah. yeah I love um, Stephen. So he's fantastic. <laughs> he's he's so good. He's yeah. so good. And they're so good together. They're they they team teach mm-hmm. and it's a very informal situation in that it's, you know at Joanna's table, literally her Mm -hmm. dining table once a week. Um, and they've been doing it for years and years and years. And it's, it's always a a pretty small group and, and you go along and you bring pages and you read them out loud and people critique them and they, they write comments and so on. And so I spent about seven years with that group. I I workshopped this novel into the shape that is it. Actually, I worked. It, I workshopped it into a huge behemoth <laughs> <laughs> because one of the things that you know, like they want you to do, is unpack that. Yeah, so exactly. I unpacked everything someone yep. said to unpack, and I turned yep. it turned into this giant thing that was like you know unpublishable, unpublishable size. Um, and so after I left the group, I spent a few years after that cutting it down, and that was that was actually a huge painful process. Was yeah. editing out. Yeah. Just whole characters, whole storylines, yeah. whole backstories, whole threads of, you know, but then stitching what I had left back together so mm-hmm. it still makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that was that was a big part of the process. Yeah, but everything I learned about, about fiction writing, creative writing, how to think about story, how to think about narrative, how to think about character scene, how to think about description, how to think about bodies, mm-hmm. uh, and so on, I, I learned at that at that table. And it was, it was a wonderful experience. Well, Julia, you're giving me tremendous amount of hope because I, I'm very similarly in my process with my first book, as you, you did at the beginning, Mm. like my, my first story concept came into my brain, you know, from all the reading I did and stuff, but came to my brain and literally sat in there, all the characters, they were driving me crazy. Honestly, I feel like there's times that I'm like, if anybody knew I had these characters in my head talking to me all the time, they would put me in an institution. And I didn't have a lot of writing friends around me, creative writing friends. I, I felt like I had invisible friends. Oh, I I, I did. <laughs> and, they, and they have popped up. You can ask my husband. They've popped up in, in opportune times. And I'll be like, we'll be in the middle of a discussion because I still am working with them. Mm-hmm. And, he's, and I'll be like, wait, I got to go write this down such and such character needs me to do this. And he's learned because he's an artist. So he's uh-huh. not 
weirded out by this, but he's like, okay, get, come back when you can, you know, and then I'm off. I got to go get it out because that's, and this is a very common thread that I've, I've heard from other authors, creative um, literature authors, that they, they have that same similar experience. That's the beautiful, fun part I feel about writing that creative part. Even though we had our, our friends with us, it's this whole world that we're experiencing it's and like you said beautiful and mad it for me it's magical and it's the creative part that I adore now getting it all onto the pages and getting it out to people to help me edit and all that that's the pain process I you know and luckily for me I've been invited to a really great group we're doing very similarly than what you did Mm -hmm. um in the seven years and I just started with them so we're doing chapter by chapter we're all writing they're all very well um, verse writers themselves, some of them cool. published and, um, they invited me in. So I felt kind of, Ooh, this is cool. And then I was scared. Cause I, I hadn't even shared any of my work with any, yeah. like, I don't even know if this is going to be good. And we do it every two weeks. So, um, it's been so helpful to have, uh, experienced writers come alongside me and help me, um, get the stories, the chapters to places where people can read them and, and not get distracted by mm-hmm. all the stuff that doesn't need to be there. Right. Mm-hmm. So right. It's right. been valuable. So, but the part that I love about your story is that it, it was seven year process in that aspect. That gives me hope because I'm feeling like, Oh my gosh, my book's never going to come out. I'm just going to keep doing podcasts and tell people a book's coming out, but it's never going to come out, <laughs> but it will. It yeah. Will. I, I it will. Yeah. Yeah. So what a beautiful, it, uh, process. So thank you for sharing that. That helped me. Um, and I'm sure it's going to help some of our listeners that are listening in. Um, so take us through the journey. So you have it in a place where you're ready to submit or get it published. What kind of publishing did you do? Did you do? I know you and I talked, you mentioned it a little bit, you, um, independent publishing house or, you know, you Mm -hmm. didn't self publish. So talk us through that process and how that journey was for you. Well, that was the painful part. (laughs) Um, yeah, it was, I I had the book, I think by about 2012, I had the book, the the manuscript ready to a point where it it felt ready to send out. Mm -hmm. Um, and I started querying agents, the, the, Mm -hmm. you know, the way one does, there's that, there are those databases that you, you you sign up for memberships to them and, um, and you're supposed to do all this research and read the books that they've, you know, other books oh, yeah. they've wrapped and so on. And, yep, yep. and of course it's just like, you know, the, enough work for five people. It, it um, is. It's yeah. really, really, and, and that's why many people give up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, your, your, your query goes to some intern who manages the slush pile. And if it's not to that person's taste or whatever, then it gets put, you know, <laughs> you get a reject letter or nothing. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it was a pretty, uh, I mean, I went into it with no, you know, I wasn't expecting like instant success or anything. Um, but after two years of querying mm-hmm. agents and, and, you know, the occasional small publishing house that could take non-agented queries, after two years and maybe, you know, close to 100 queries, mm-hmm. uh, I was just like, damn, this, is, this sucks, you know, yeah. this is... Yeah. Um, a waste of my time. Yeah. <laughs> it takes a lot of time, a lot of management yeah. and just like really making sure you don't accidentally say, you know, dear Ms. Bernstein, when it's actually, you know, dear Mr. 
Gutterov or something, you know, no, like it's no, just very totally, easy to yeah, get your yeah. letters mixed up and your names mixed up. Yeah. And one person wants five pages. One per- person wants two pages. One person wants 10 pages. One, one person, person wants, wants a synopsis only. Uh, the synopsis only. The synopsis is one page. Yeah. The synopsis <laughs> can be five pages. You know, it's just yeah, yeah, like yeah. getting all that straight is very, is very. And it's like, um, and now I need a glass of wine and none of it's going to go out. It's just, I'll do this tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's, it's hard it's um it's hard to keep your uh uh enthusiasm up you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and and so i got a lot of rejections i also got a lot of just like not silence you know crickets yeah. Yeah. and um and i got i never got you know people talk about how they would get rejection letters that were explaining in detail like and what they liked and what they didn't like yeah, like, yeah. i never got that i would just get like these one line just like this does not serve our needs at this time or whatever and <laughs> the generic one that they have in their computer that they yeah. you know just gets spit out <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um occasionally maybe like out of three or four out of you know all of the people um I would get something back that said, you know, this is actually better than most of what I receive, but I don't know how I would sell it. Oh, sorry. You know, (laughs) good writing. Yeah. Sell it. Yeah. 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 Uh, And it was interesting. I got the the funniest one I got was, um, and it was right at the height of the Occupy movement. And it was like some New York agent and, you know, Occupy was like started in New York, right? It was big. It was a big deal. It was like, you Mm -hmm. know, um and and this person wrote back and they said um you know does not suit our needs at this time uh and they said um something like we don't think the subject matter is of interest to contemporary readers (laughs) and and I wanted to write back I mean I never replied to any of these because like what you know why argue with these people right but I, I almost wanted to write back and just like have you looked out your window? Exactly. <laughs> you know, like, the streets of your city are like crawling with protesters right now. That's the ones that you frame, you know, <laughs> yeah. in your office and then when you yeah. become famous, you're like, and this person didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love yeah, it. So, That's so fantastic. Yeah, it, was pretty, it was pretty demoralizing. I have to yeah. say, I oh, wish yeah. I could say it something does. more than that, but it was, um, it was hard. That's, I went to. That's true. It the, is yeah, demoralizing. It is. It is. I went to the Willamette Writers Conference a couple of times, mm-hmm. and um, I have to say, one of the good experiences out of that, I did a query letter writing workshop with uh, mm-hmm. Cynthia Whitcomb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she writes for she writes screenplays for Hollywood. Yeah, and yeah. she that workshop really helped me get my query letter to a point where I felt really good about it. Oh, that's good. Uh, okay. It didn't really make much difference. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you felt it, good about it, right? Yeah, That's I felt good. good about it. I felt like, oh, this is this is how you're supposed to talk about your book, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, I pitched to a lot of people and, you know, again, and I just had weird stuff happen. Like there was one agent who was inter- genuinely interested. She said, mm-hmm. send me the manuscript. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, oh, the the first 50 pages or something. And I sent it to her. And then I got an like a response back from her. It's like, thanks. Um, but I've just signed another author with an environmental ecological theme. So no thanks. Oh. And I was like, well, why did you do yeah. you know? It's like, I would just get like weird sort of like yeah. bizarre, like, um, like bad timing things. Kept yeah. Happening. Yeah. That's yeah. what it really, it, it sounds like. And that's something that I take away a lot when I'm interviewing authors that it, it really might not even 
have nothing to do with your quality of work or your ability to express your quality work. It has everything to do with it on the other end of it, the publisher or agent's timing, timeline, budget, and needs. And we don't have magical balls we can look into and see. Yeah. You know, I wish mm-hmm. we did, but you know, we, we can't like do the crystal ball and say, this agent's looking for this particular book right mm-hmm. now. I got to get it to them. So it's really an interesting, frustrating process. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And I started to feel like this is, you know, this whole thing is, I think part of the problem is, Authors are made to feel like somehow they're in control of the process. Like if you get your query letter right, if you do this right, if you show up here, if you talk to these people, somehow you will make this happen. Mm -hmm. And it became clear to me that I have absolutely no control, Mm -hmm. zero control for those reasons. Like there's all of these factors behind the scenes Mm -hmm. that have nothing to do with the quality of your work, Mm -hmm. how you express about, I mean, it has something to do. Like if you, if your work is not good, if you don't talk about it in a way that gets the point across and so on, then that's obviously a hindrance. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's all of this other, there's all of these other variables going on that, that are out of our control. And, and I, I started to feel like it's a little bit doing a disservice to authors, you know, with these conferences and all these, um, you know, blogs about how to like perfect your query letter and get it read and, you know, all this yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just like, well, yeah, but you know, yeah, that's exactly. because I think as, as authors, you, you take on this, um, this task and you commit to this task of like doing all, following all these steps precisely and mm-hmm. doing exactly what they want and adding some flair and, mm-hmm. you know, and everything. And, and what is actually going on is, is not something you can control. So it's, it's easy to feel like you have somehow failed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and authors don't need any extra self doubt. Right, right. We already have yeah. plenty of it. Yeah, because we're artists, and there's something yeah. that people don't. Maybe readers might not realize that they're just strictly readers. That um, I believe that authors are artists, and we are plagued with the same aspect that many artists, musicians, um, uh, painters, sculptors. There's the it's it's an art form. You're putting yourself out, and but we have so much self doubt and. And we struggle with that. A lot of us do. So then to go through that process, it hurts because you're like, I've done all, I've done, the, I've checked the box. I've done all this. Yeah. So is it worth it? So, yeah. so I totally get it. So for you, where did it end up? Did you find your, you didn't, did you find an agent? Well, I didn't find an agent. Um, I, I, I was published by Forest Avenue Press, which mm-hmm. is run by Laura Stanfield. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, submitting, Laura takes submissions for a, a narrow window mm-hmm. each year. She only publishes a couple of books a year. And I, I had met Laura in my writing group years before and she hadn't, she didn't have a publishing house then. She, mm-hmm. um, was a writer and she still is a writer. She's a brilliant writer. Uh, but she decided to, uh, become a publisher and some years before. And I think by the time I, submitted to her she'd been going for like four or five years or something Uh and she had been publishing novels that were you know sort of maybe a little bit more on the fantastical or whimsical side Mm -hmm. and then she decided that she wanted to publish a realistic novel that was like her sort of editorial kind of 
thing that yeah. that one year as that window opened it was like you know I'm looking for a realistic novel set in the near in the not near future sorry in the <laughs> recent past um and uh and so I was like oh you know because up until then like she and I had discussed how because we were we were friends after being mm-hmm. in this writing group together mm-hmm. like my novel really wasn't quite right for her publishing house yeah, and her publishing yeah. house wasn't really quite right for my novel and yeah. and so we sort of got that out of the way you know once yeah. she started a publishing house and so I you know I was totally fine with that um so I hadn't really been thinking of her as a as an option her publishing house as an option um but then I saw this sort of editorial change on her part uh, on her website or you know on social media or something, I thought, well, you know, everyone else has rejected me. I could, I could, you know, I should at least submit to, to, to Forest Avenue Press and just see what happens. And it was literally... submission I, to a friend easily. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I literally, I remember it's like hitting the submit button. You know, mm-hmm. I filled out all the things, the submittable and everything. And, and I remember hitting the submit button and just thinking, if Laura doesn't take it, it's not getting published. This is my last, yeah. this is my last attempt. You know, I am just not going to keep, it just felt undignified, you know, yeah. this whole, no, like this two it. years of trying to find an agent and, and just like not getting anywhere. It was just like, obviously the universe does not want me to have this out in the world for some reason, you know, and I accept that I was sort of making my peace with that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then, um, and then Laura acquired it. So I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, there we go. Yeah, there we go. And what I take away from that is that, and it's something I take away from a lot of my stories that I've heard from authors on the podcast and talking to authors on the outside that are published. It really has a lot to do with relationship building. And it has yep. a lot to do with your connections in that ability for relationship building. And it has very little to do with that one-time meeting that you might meet an agent querying them at a workshop versus somebody that you have been working with or around or you know from friends and they can, you know, verify and they know you and they decide, you know, yeah. I have somebody you can talk to, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I'm a huge advocate for relationship building kind of an aspect. That's one reason why this podcast was, has been so good for me is because it's forced me to go out and find people that I would mm. have never met and mm-hmm. ask them these questions because I need to hear your story. And I, fe- I felt like if I needed to hear the story, some of the authors of the process that they went through, good, bad, ugly, then there's got to be somebody else out there that needs to hear the story too. I can't be the only one. Yeah. Yeah. Goes, right. Yeah. So, so awesome. Fantastic. How Wonderful. It's about relationships, people. It's about that building that connection. And and I kind of feel like you never know the connection you're going to build. It might not come to fruition for you at that very moment that you've made the connection, but it might years down the road or even months down the road. And that's something I've learned to just let go of because I've met some awesome people through this podcast. And I'm like, this person's so great. I want to make sure I stay in touch with them. And then I we're all busy. We may never talk to each other again until they contact me and say, Hey, I have this project. Are you interested? You know, it's so yeah. that part's great. It's really true. Cause when I think about when I first met Laura at the writing group, it was 2002 or 2003. The space between that meeting and when she acquired the book in the summer of 2016, mm. easily 14 or 15 years. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a huge amount of time, and that's something my husband keeps reminding me, um, because I'm a I'm part of the generation that wants immediate results, and um, I'm at the older end of that generation, and and I 
always are, I'm harder on myself than anybody else would be. People are like, man, you did a podcast in 19 months. You're doing great. Your writing is going great. And for me, it's like, oh no, but I wanted five books out by now. And I want my podcast to be picked up by NPR. Are you kidding me? I'm so far behind where I think I'm supposed to be. (laughs) (laughs) And my husband always reminds me, honey, you've got your whole life ahead of you. Remember what your goal was. And truly my goal was, was to start setting the stage for my retirement year. So I'm, uh, I'm already ahead on that in my, right. Opinion, right? right? So, <laughs> but that's, that's valuable that year set. So thanks for reminding me today in our conversation. Good, good. Yeah. I needed to hear that. Your story is, is inspiring to me. And I think it would be for, for all my other listeners, but here's one thing I do know. My listeners love to hear my authors read. And I think you and I could probably talk all day about this and continue, but I want to be mindful of my listeners who are driving down I-5 going, Vicki, can we just get to the book? (laughs) (laughs) Julia, I'm going to let you go ahead and set the stage for that reading. Um, And everybody knows I go quiet and listen. So do whatever you need to do, set the stage for what part you're reading and, and and go ahead and go for it. Okay. Thanks. All righty. So, um, I think I mentioned earlier there are these there are these characters. The main characters are Fetzer, Jen, Nelson. They're three point of view characters in the book. And then there's also Deirdre. She she's a, a, a main character, but she's not point of view. She doesn't have a point of view in the book. Um, and Nelson is he's he's the one who he sort of had this middle-class job and then he, he left it to join this band of activists. And he's sort of in this crisis place in his life. Cause he, he left behind everything he knew to his whole middle-class life to be with this sort of really scrappy band of people. He's not sure if he made the right choice, but he doesn't know what else he would do kind of thing. Um, he has fallen in love with Deirdre, who is this uh, photographer, this, um, uh, Irish photographer who has sort of insinuated herself into this group. Um, and I'm not giving much away when I tell you that they've fallen in love because it's, it's kind of pretty obvious at the beginning of the book that that's going to happen. Um, Jen is another character. Uh, she's the youngest of the group. She's in her late 20s and she's really sharp. She's sarcastic. She's a hacker. She's a hacktivist. Uh, she's, she's sort of like, you get her voice in the moment. She's first person present. Her voice is first person present, um, because you get her sort of like in real time. Um, Nelson, he's, uh, third person present. So there's a the third person voice, um, adds a little bit of a distance between him and the reader, which seems appropriate for, uh, his, his sense of disconnect from himself. Um, and then there's Fetzer. Uh, Fetzer's the oldest of the group. He turns 50 in the novel and <clears throat> he's a Vietnam vet and he has a shaved head and wears black combat boots and, and he looks like a thug, but he's actually like this real pussycat underneath. Um, and his voice is third person, his first voice is first person past because he's the oldest. He's got this retrospective view. He's the wisest of the group and so on. So those are the three characters, the three voices. Um, there's also Deirdre. She's in these scenes. There's also a character called Sylvia who's, she's just in this scene, one of these scenes and she, she comes and goes. She's like an outside character. Um, in the book, they are investigating a local university called Harry Lane University. And I strove to make this university not mirror any specific Portland university. So 
please don't be sitting there thinking, oh, that's free college or, oh, that's PSU. It's, uh, you know, I really try to make it not any one college. Um, Harry Lane University is a bastion of liberalism, kind of like Reed, but it's downtown, kind of like PSU. Uh, They have uncovered the fact that this college, this university has received weapons research funding from the Pentagon. And they, they revealed this, which the college was trying to keep it a secret because it's not on brand for the college. Um, and so the students at the college are protesting this. So they've, they've sort of outed this, this thing that's happened. Um, but they also suspect the chair of engineering, the guy who's managing this money, they suspect that he's up to something more than just getting Pentagon money for research. They think he's up to something shady. They can't put their finger on it. Um, they confronted him about it in a meeting. They went to his office and met him, and he got the ban from campus. Um, he's, he, he wields some kind of control that they don't understand, like why does this one department chair able, you know, get them banned and so on. So um, they've been banned from campus, but they want to continue investigating this guy in this university. So this is sort of the, the quandary that they st- they're in in this chapter. Um, so I'm going to start out with Fetzer's point of view and – then I'm going to move to a Jen chapter and then a Nelson chapter. All right. So starting with Fetzer. We picked up the mail from the post office box, then stopped for coffees on the way home. No hate mail that day, but we did get our first issue of the Harry Lane Gazette. Being banned from campus had spurred Nelson to sign up for the monthly alumni newsletter. As Jen skimmed the rag, she noticed a call for artists for Harry Lane's photography gallery. This could be our way back in, she said. It took me a moment to get her point. She means Deirdre, said Nelson, and it's ideal. No one there knows her. Huh, that is true, I said. What do they want, a resume? Portfolio, said Jen. Call for an appointment. You think she'll mind, I asked. I'm sure she'd be happy to, said Nelson, smug. I got out the phone and made the call. But when we got home, Sylvia's Audi TT was parked outside the house. She had one of the gray ones. I secretly coveted it. We could hear them cackling from downstairs. They were sitting on the velvet kitchen sofa, a bottle of wine between them, Sylvia with her legs crossed and her arm along the sofa back. I sternly greeted Deirdre with, I told you never to open the door when you're alone. Dee and Sylvia gaped at each other. Then they held up their matching cell phones and took pictures of us standing there like idiots. Despite the camera phone being a disappointment, Deirdre couldn't stop using it. Then I told Deirdre we got her a show in the gallery and she lowered her phone. You what? Harry Lane University has this gallery devoted to photography, said Nelson. Well, we didn't exactly get you a show, more like an appointment to talk to the curator. Alarm jangled in Deirdre's eyes. When? Jan looked at her watch. Three. Deirdre jumped up. You're bleeding joking. You think I'm going in for an interview like that with no flippin' preparation? You're out of your tiny minds. I don't even have a portfolio together. How am I supposed to pull a portfolio together so fast? Nelson gestured meekly in the direction of the basement. We thought you could just take that binder you have? Well, you didn't think too clearly, did you? She paced. 
It takes time to get ready for something like this. I can't just waltz in there with a stack of photos under my arm. I have to do research, find out what they're looking for, edit me pictures down to fit. She whirled around. Jesus Christ, you think it's easy, don't you? Just pick up a few snaps you have lying around and have a wee chat about them and you're flying it. Well, it's not like that. Holy cow, said Jen. Girl's got lungs. Nelson said, Deirdre, please, could you keep still a minute? Hands on hips, she stopped in front of me. You could have asked. Look, I said, don't sweat it. The main thing is to get you on campus. Doesn't matter what your portfolio looks like. Nelson winced. Deirdre crossed her arms. It doesn't matter what my portfolio looks like. I apologized. Nelson persuaded her back to the sofa, sat her down, calmed her down, suggested she exhibit her work more, that she treat this like a trial run, that he'd help her find other venues. Out from under her cot came the heavy binder. She turned pages. Excuse me. Start over. Out from under her cot came the heavy binder. She turned pages and muttered, I'll have to choose them in the car. Shit, shit, they're all mixed up. There's Stuart from last year, Sal in New York, and Sal again with Rico and Janie, and that famous fountain. Deirdre, I said, you can do better than a show at a college. Nelson's right, this is just practice. You should get these out, in a magazine or something. It's amazing any of them survive, she murmured. I said, They were made by a survivor. The smile she gave me was watery and grateful. I reached down and touched a picture of an old woman in what looked like a city park. Shadows from some object out of the frame covered her in unplaceable, confusing shapes. Something about them, I said, just kind of grabs at you. So the next chapter is a gen scene, and... um, they drive around in a 1985 Oldsmobile Tornado with a front bench seat. So the three of them across the front bench seat, just to, you've got to picture that to make this, for this to make sense. Here she comes, says Fester to the rear view. Finally, I say. I thought she'd been swallowed by the Ministry of Truth. Deirdre waves at us through the window, as if waiting 45 minutes for her in the stinking underground garage hasn't been a giant waste of our time. Nelson flips the seat forward and she climbs in the back. Nancy's gorgeous, she says. Then she goes on about meeting the curator, seeing the gallery space, and that Reynolds is apparently cheesed off, that there's posters up all over campus protesting the Pentagon contract. You got photos of them, I ask? A few, she giggles. I felt like such a spy. And Nancy loves your hair, by the way. Huh? She said, I have never seen such fine hair on a white girl. And I got a show in December. But the thing is, the curator doesn't want the work I have. She wants new work, images that speak to the local or regional culture. You must be present to win, I say. They fall into a discussion about how she'll need a real camera and a dark room. And Deirdre whines, I have no idea how I'm going to pull it off. I say, what would you take photos of? I'm thinking the bridges, trilliums in Forest Park, roses, the usual stereotypical Portland images. She leans forward, and I can smell the mint on her breath. Girl eats a lot of mints. You, she says. Me? A lot of you. I, says Fetzer, I don't like that idea. Can't, I say, security. 
I don't mean while you're hacking or setting fires. I just mean around the house, you know, dinner, watching TV and so on. Nelson huffs. For the record, we do not set fires. I flip around and say, for fuck's sake, Deirdre, we just wanted some help getting inside this stupid campus. Don't tell me this is going to turn into some long-term art project. But she's smiling in a conspiratorial way that makes me pause. Ah, she says. But Dr. Reynolds would be a collector of fine art photography, wouldn't he? And he attends the openings. Fetzer strokes his chin. Nelson slowly smiles, and I have to admit, the idea of that prick seeing our mugs all over his swanky gallery walls is pretty funny. So moving forward to a Nelson chapter, this is actually two weeks further into the narrative, but it's a, it's a chapter that links directly back to the other two, so it makes sense. They are now going to the Harry Lane campus to witness a protest. Uh, it's a die-in protest where students are going to lie on the ground all over the place, to, uh, acting like dead bodies as if the place has been bombed to uh, you know, just demonstrate what it looks like when civilians are killed in war. And um, they're going there in disguise. Nelson tugs at a chunk of russet hair above Fetzer's ear. It's crooked. It's fine, says Fetzer, and swats his hand away. Quit it. Jen turns the car around and heads for 12. She says, can't the guy wear fake hair in peace? Dee sits forward from the back seat, lays her hands on Fetzer's shoulders. You don't want to be walking around looking gormless, do you? She says, and Nelson smothers a laugh. 8.30 a.m. and already he's punchy. They really need to get more sleep. It does need a wee bit of adjusting, Dee says, and Fetzer submits to her tugging. You brought the camera, says Nelson, and Deirdre whacks his shoulder because, of course, he asked her that already. He reaches over the seat and pretends to whack her back, and she ducks, then slumps across the back seat with a giggle. Jen sighs. Sorry, says Nelson, and he faces forward. Jen's been so touchy lately. Nelson looks up at the sleek white structure. This wasn't here when I was here. It was an old Victorian house. I think it used to be philosophy. They all cup their hands around their eyes and peer through the glass. The gallery walls are empty, and a small ladder sits in the middle of the shiny wooden floor. Dear God, it's bigger than I remember, says Deirdre. Nelson says, I can't wait to see your work in there. To think he used to be ambivalent about her style. Now he can see how good she is, and watching her print the ghost images burning their way onto the paper, it's like magic. He's never been so close to someone so creative. Jen looks at her watch. We need to get to the quad. People have started lying down. The ground is wet, but they're just lying right on top of it, in all sorts of positions. Is that the vigil, says Jen, and she points across the quad to a clutch of people in coats. A handful of chairs, signs leaning up against the steps to Huel. Coffees are being handed around. See the lady giving out coffees, Nelson says to Deirdre. She works in the cafeteria. I think her name is Claris. We used to chat about perennials. Deirdre lifts the camera, zooms in, takes a picture. Then another shot of the growing Diane. But of course, he can't walk up to Claris and say hello because he's wearing a longish blonde wig. And if anyone asks, he's a Dutch exchange student studying violin for the semester. I want to get a shot from above, says Deirdre, and they all look up at the buildings framing the quad. 
Funnily enough, your best bet might be Huel, says Fetzer. Gah, says Nelson. Okay, then let's go to the top floor so we don't bump into Reynolds. But when the elevator doors open, there is Reynolds. Nelson's effervescence vanishes. Reynolds is talking to another guy. They're waiting to get on. Nelson's limbs stall. Fetzer steps out and to the right, and he and the others manage to follow. Only when they hear the lift doors close do they stop. Nelson's heart is thumping on his ribs. That was the guy, he whispers to Deirdre, and she goes, ooh, and looks back at the elevator, smiling behind her hand. Jen clutches her cloth cap. Seek shelter and cover head. Fetzer rolls his eyes at the universe. Got that over with, at least. Large windows line the hall, and spectators have gathered to look down at the quad. Nelson squeezes in between students and guides Deirdre in front of him. The quad is now full of bodies. The bodies lie horribly still, dozens and dozens of dead. It's hard to watch. Every quad-facing window is packed with people, and for a moment Nelson imagines the building tipping over under the uneven weight. Let's look around, says Fetzer, since folks are so preoccupied. Lecture rooms are empty, just book bags and coffees left behind like some academic Mary Celeste. In one lab, a video is on pause, the chemical chain reaction diagram stopped in its tracks. Office doors are open with nobody at the desks. A printer spits paper onto the carpet. I reckon we should drop in on the fourth floor, says Jen. Just for fun, says Betzer. Just for fun, says Nelson, and the lightheadedness returns. He winks at Deirdre, and together they all slip into the stairwell. Nancy's office is empty. The door to Reynolds' office is open. Who's going in, says Jen. What are we looking for, says Nelson. The wall beside him seems to come closer, then moves away. He puts his hand out to steady it. We haven't thought this through. Fetzer says, I'll go. You three keep walking. I'll go, says Deirdre. He doesn't know me. I'll go, says Jen. And next second, she's crossing Nancy's office. She peeks around the doorframe, and then she gives a thumbs up, steps into Reynolds' office, and out of sight. Shit, says Fetzer. We don't have a plan. He looks up and down the hall. You two walk. I'll guard. He gives Nelson a push, and he and Deirdre amble toward the window, crowded with spectators at the end of the hall. Oh, my God, says a woman nearby. Her hair is stick-straight blonde, and her eyes are wide on him. Who the hell is she? Oh, please don't let this be some girl he dated. No, too young. Oh, my God, she says again. Her hands cup her face, then press against her thighs. You so look like Kurt Cobain. I do. Nelson squeezes, uh, sorry, Deirdre squeezes his hand hard. Excuse, please, she says. Not good English. He's supposed to be Dutch. Hello, he says, and holds out his other hand to the stupid woman. I am not Kurt Cobain. I am Jakob Mertens. Oh, but you so look like him, the woman gushes, and she takes his hand in both of hers, like back from the dead, you know? Kaylee, she calls, and she points down at Nelson's head. Come meet this guy. He totally looks like Cobain. Heads turn. Eyes look him up and down, slide away. Kaylee appears and studies him. Kind of, she says, but friendlier, with glasses. Awesome. There's movement behind them. Then 
There you are, Jacob, says Fetzer. You need to quit wandering off like that. Fetzer scoops them up without breaking his stride. It's not till they're in the car and Fetzer is pulling out of the parking space that Nelson asks, find anything? Not sure, says Jen. I got this. She tugs a wad of folded papers from her back pocket. The file on his screen, I send it to print. Plus, there was this note in the middle drawer of his desk. The note is small, in pencil, on Harry Lane University notepad paper. You took the note? No, says Jen. I made a hologram of it, which I am now holding in my hand. Fitz was shaking his head. A note he keeps in his drawer? He's going to miss it for sure. There were other notes in there that looked the same. Sheesh, it's not like I took them all. Then Jen pats her hip and goes, wait, I did take them all. Nelson's heart does a flip. Please tell me you didn't. Jen digs around, elbows him in the ribs, pulls out Deirdre's phone. You forgot this, darling. Me phone! Deirdre's hand reaches from the back seat, but Jen snatches the phone away. I need to keep it till I download the photos. I only grabbed this one because it was so faint I thought the camera wouldn't pick up the writing. Nelson leans his head back until it's resting on the firm leather of the seat. He lets out a moan that turns into a laugh. Jen smirks and shakes her head. Sorry, start again. Fetzer smirks and shakes his head. Well, what's on the note? It's just numbers, says Jen. And what's the printout, says Fetzer? Numbers too. Nelson would like to take the rest of the day off, except it's only 10 a.m. He gazes sideways at the printout in Jen's hand, says, looks like the department budget. What a waste, says Jen. Wish he was drafting something resignable, like a dirty email to a teenage boy. I'll finish there. Awesome. I'm totally hooked. I have to know what happens now. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. I love the descriptions, even though, you know, you said it's character driven. I totally can see where they're at. So you did a very good job in that aspect of it. Thank you. Very, very good. So listeners, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And if you did, make sure you follow on show notes and go to Julia Stoops um, website. We'll all be posted there and you can they can get the book from your website, right, Julia? Absolutely, yeah. Um, there's links to uh, IndieBound, mm-hmm. Amazon. Um, it's available as an audio book. You can get that through Libro uh, as well as various other places. So, yeah, there's a lot of different formats. Mm-hmm. And so if you do get her book and you heard it first here from her podcast, uh, make sure you let her know, hey, I heard you on the Pacific Northwest. I would I have, love that. Yeah, I have a lot of um, authors that have told me, hey, people have contacted me from hearing the podcast. So that's, that's really, really cool. Yeah. And can I put a word out? Like, it matters so much to authors of independent, with independent publishers. It re- Reviews matter a lot. Yeah. Even if it's a single sentence, a review on Goodreads or Amazon or something, it really helps um, bump up visibility within those Mm -hmm. algorithms, Mm -hmm. much more than just doing a rating. So, you know, a review is really, really appreciated. Thank you for saying that, Julie, because I often forget to mention that on this podcast, that if you do get the book and you read it, please do a review. Um, Reviews I consider are the lifeblood for authors these days. Yeah. Do. And, and like Julia said, you can just say one, two words, fantastic yeah. work, you know, so wonderful. So Julia, before we leave, why don't you leave the podcast with one insightful tip that you can share with somebody like me who's starting out and, and um, doesn't quite know where she's going yet, but she knows she's going to publish a book someday. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I would say the thing that really 
uh, was a game changer for me for writing was, was joining the writing group. Um, and so I would, I would just encourage, and when I meet people who say they're writing a book, um, I encourage them to join a writing group um, because workshopping a book is, it just takes it to another level. It really does. And it's one thing to write something on your own and it, you just cannot get the perspective that you can get from other people and you are writing for other people. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit like being a user experience designer. I can, I can create an interface that makes a lot of sense to me because I created it, but I'm not, you know, like, I'm, like you're, you're, you're creating for someone else in a way, like you're doing it for yourself, but you're also doing it for someone else. You're doing it for other people. And the only way you can find out if what you're writing makes sense to people, you know, that flows well and so on is to get that feedback from a group of people. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Wonderful, wonderful advice. Thank you so much. And, and I'm hoping that, you know, more stories are percolating in the back of your mind and you might be working on something new so we can bring you back again someday. <laughs> well, I'm, I don't have anything in the works right now, but I, you know, wouldn't rule it out. I never expected to write the first book. So who knows what, what surprises are in the future, right? <laughs> right, Julia. Well, I guarantee if you write another one, definitely hit me up, come back on the podcast. We'll do, we'll <laughs> do. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter where you can be entered automatically each month to win a signed free copy of a book from an author that's appeared on the podcast. You can find out more at our website, www.squishpin.com. And finally, if you're an author in the Pacific Northwest and you would like to appear on the show, you can find out more on our website. So until next week, I hope you enjoy the journey. This is Vicki J. Carter signing off.